0: Good morning, welcome to the show. Thanks for listening again. It's Monday the 28th of March and it's a a dry morning here in TW11, but it's dropped a few degrees. Uh, There's a sting in the winter tail, I think, yet after what was beautiful weather last week. Might just be that I've come back from Dubai and I'm struggling to acclimatise again. Either way, what we saw in Dubai as far as sport was very interesting. Not just the victory of country grammar for Frankie Dutori and Bob Baffert in the Dubai World Cup, but that dead heat. For the Dubai turf between Lord North, brilliant training performance from John Gosden and Pantalassa, and a very deep running of the Shima Classic, but you really feel from a, a global horse racing point of view that the main story of the night was the dominance of Japan. It shouldn't have come as any great surprise to us. The Japanese horses won two races at the Breeders' Cup, one race with a fairly unconsidered outsider, four on Saudi Cup night, and now five, including two of the real big ones on Dubai World Cup night. And there could be more to come at the Ark, Kentucky Derby and perhaps even at Royal Ascot during the course of the season. Lydia Hizot will be joining me a little bit later, not only to try and understand where Japan now sit in terms of global racing nations, but also how we can compare ourselves to what's going on in the East. First, though, Nahiro Goda, our good friend from the Green Channel in Japan, joins us. Nahiro, we've been talking about these fantastic horses in your country for a couple of years now. But have even these results on Saturday night surprised you?
1: Well, you know, this is, you know, definitely, definitely more than I expected. Of course, you know, a couple of the Japanese runners, we hoped a couple of the Japanese run well, a couple of the Japanese win Dubai, but uh, five wins is, you know, much, much more than I expected. Oh, I was too excited and I couldn't sleep on Saturday night until six in the morning. <laughs> it was a very, really exciting. It was a, you know, wonderful night for all of us involved in horse racing and breeding in japan (laughs) Nick,
0: much has been said about the way that the japanese industry has been grown over the last few years if you were to try and give me the factors that have combined to create this level of success where would you start
1: well you know there are several reasons you know first of all introduction of Sunday Silence from the United States. You know, Sunday Silence was a game changer. You know, he improved the pedigree and quality of the Japanese bred horses significantly. And his sons, of course, you know, uh, including a Deep Impact. And now, you know, sons of Deep Impact are doing very, very well. Um, like Kizuna, you know, who has sent more than three international winners. So now the quality of the sire standing in Japan is, I think, the best best in the world. And again, uh, quality of the broodmares, which Japanese breeders own, are now very, very good. Well, let's say last 10 years, 20 years, um, top breeders like Yoshida Brothers, you know, he, made a huge investment to buy quality mares in Newmarket, Kildare, Kentucky. So now, you know, the quality of the mares in Japan is really, really good. Very, very good. And now, you know, skilled by the trainers, you know. Now, many JRA trainers has experienced to work for top trainers in New Markets or America, um, you know, they know how our horses are trending, for example, in New Markets or Ireland. So now, you know, trainers in Japan know how to train their top horses. So I think, you know, well, a combination of those, you know, similar factors uh, boosted the quality of the Japanese runners now.
0: How tightly... Now, Hiro, does the Japanese Racing Authority, the JRA, how tightly does that organization control racing? So how, how much does it sort of manage what you can and can't do?
1: Well, you know, the Japan Racing Association is, you know, uh, racing authority, which is running uh, racing very, very well. But, uh, you know, the improvement of the quality of the Japanese horses are, you know, I think uh, I want to give the credit to all the breeders, not to the Japan Racing Association. You know, the breeders, not, not only top breeders like Yoshida Brothers, but also some, you know, small rather small breeders still there you know working hard they are trying to improve their you know horses they bred so i think you know the japanese breeders has been working really really hard in last two, two decades and now they are able to breed
0: top-class horses now. What is it that enables them to to succeed financially now, Hero? Do they get money from the JRA? Do they get money from the government? Are there incentives? What, what keeps them going? Because everybody knows how expensive it is to breed horses. Why is it a good thing to be able to do in Japan?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Now, now, you know, this is a story which Japan Racing Association is deeply involved. Now, you know, the wagering in Japan, the betting turnover in Japan has been very, very good in the last twenty years, and uh, you know, Japan Racing Association is racing authority, and the Japan Racing Association is the single body who can handle, who, who are you know, organizing a, a betting in Japan. So. Wagering is good, which means prize money at Japan Racing Association is very very good. Then, as prize money is very good, owners are very confident to you know invest on their racehorses. You know, um, you know now domestic yelling market in Japan has been very very good. Uh, in other words, yellings and falls in Japan are very expensive. Then, which means you know breeders. As a money to reinvest their money onto, for example, recruiting a new mares or investing to improve their, their land, uh, trying to, uh, hire, uh, you know, riders or, you know, workers with good skill. So, yeah, you know, from the people point, point of the finance, yes, first of all, um, prize uh, money is very good. Then wagering is very good. So we have to say thank you to PanTES in Japan, who has been enjoying you know, betting on horse racing. Well, you know, horse racing in Japan is a very, very popular sport, you know, one of the most, I should say, one of the most popular sports in Japan. For example, if you come to race courses, you know, you see a lot of young you know, crowds. Uh, racing fans under 30 years old um they love to come to race tracks to enjoy horse racing to enjoy betting i think you know japan racing association has done a very very good job for marketing to attract those you know young people uh, co- attracting them to come to race scores and uh, you know i might tell before um the COVID 19 um you know crisis is ironically created some new punters new supporters of horse racing you know japanese people who were forced to stay home needed to find something you know enjoyable thing they can enjoy at home now they found ah oh, we can enjoy horse racing at home you know watching tv and having a best at home so you know the since the Pandemic of the COVID-19. Well, hope it's, it's you not know, Funding in Japan has been increasing significantly. So yeah, of course, horse racing is a good culture in Japan, and we are
0: enjoying some luck as well. And the hero, big targets mentioned on World Cup night for various Japanese winners: the Arc, Kentucky Derby. Not surprising. What about horses that might come to the UK this summer?
1: Yep, you know uh, Yoshito Ihagi is seriously counselling to send two horses to your country for Platinum Royal Ascot. One of them is Stay Foolish, winner of the Dubai Gold Cup and winner of the Red sea Turf Handicap. Yoshito Ihagi is very keen to send a Stay Foolish to Royal Ascot to run a gold cup at Ascot. And in addition, Yoshito Ehagi is keen to send Panther Rassa, the winner of Dubai turf, to Royal Ascot to enter him in Prince of Wild Stakes, 10-3rd on G1 racing Royal Ascot. Well, now, you know, the next ambition for Yoshito Ehagi is to win to have a winner at Royal Ascot. I think it's quite likely to see a Japanese trained runner at Platinum Royal Ascot this year.
0: Uh, now, here we go to that. My thanks to him and a few suggestions there as to exactly why Japan seemed to be so dominant and are now becoming so dominant on the international stage. As Lydia Hislop rejoins the podcast this Monday morning, uh, Lydia, hard not to stand back and watch on in awe and envy at what is being achieved in the Far East.
2: Yeah, I think they have um, systematically got such a lean, uh, at thoughtful and effective breeding, training and racing operation, which is strong domestically and clearly from what was said there is, has a virtuous circle in terms of the domestic market, in terms of people are um, willing and able to invest internally and get rewarded for it internally. And now um, the best of those horses are more routinely reaching out on the international stage and coming home with first prize.
0: And what kept striking me both in Saudi and in Dubai, as I said there, was how many different sets of connections were involved. And that's particularly interesting in sharp contrast to the the growth of the super trainer in Europe and in, in America, where so many good horses are in so few hands.
2: Yeah. And that's a concern both on the flat and over jumps in Britain and, um, in, in Europe. And I suppose, I mean, it it seems to me that, I mean, we, we've Europe, European racing has developed in a sort of piecemeal way, hasn't it? That hasn't, hasn't had the opportunity to be able to be, um, thought through and strategically planned. It's just emerged in that way. And it, as the rest of the world has also emerged and grown and improved its racing, that has exerted tugs, pull, pulls and influences on um, European racing, on, on British racing, um, which has pulled it in different directions.
0: Were you as struck by, by the fact, as I was, that, that Nahiro managed to praise the racing authority, um, the punting community in Japan, and the owners and breeders with equal warmth—something uh, that I think you'd struggle to get from anybody here.
2: Definitely, I, I mean, the, 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 the fact that punters even got a mention um was uh, was was extraordinary, and I, extraordinary, and I uh, applaud him for it. It's something that's um, routinely forgotten over here, isn't it? How much money, um, how much reliance there is in Britain on uh, people betting on horse racing and um, the only time it ever comes up is when people are worried that it's not there anymore um, uh, <laughs> for example see gambling review for example see covid so the only thing that kept that kept horse racing going in terms of getting any income during covid um, and this needs to be everybody needs to be reminded of this was people are betting on horse racing and of course owners keeping their horses in training clearly that was but but in order for them to have Um, money to race for that was underpinned by uh, punters Uh,
0: clearly there's been a lot of focus on this over the weekend and we talked about it before the weekend because of that very small field consolation race for the lincoln and it sort of sharpened that argument again about where are all those horses of sort of medium to high level are they all disappearing abroad or do they just not exist and do we really know yet what the effect of the pandemic is on the ownership of racehorses
2: yeah, I don't think we do know that. Um, I, I, I think it might have have broken the charm of, of of British racing in some kind of way in terms of we you know it was trading a lot on its um, prestige and its history, and people were overlooking the prize money. I I wonder whether that charm has been broken. Um, I don't think you can get to the bottom of. Uh, I mean, there's there is we have a pyramid. And there are palpably fewer class two horses than there are uh, class five and six horses, but we still need a working um, pyramid all the way up. and what I fear is is that just below the very top level it's being eaten into. I don't think you can get into that just from sales figures. There'll be horses that are sold privately. There'll also be more particularly horses in very large global operations that are just shifted abroad and race abroad and, and don't don't come back to Britain. So I, I think it's a, a real concern. Um, many trainers were making the point to me about the Spring Mile that uh, Doncaster is sort of uh, widowed alone at the start of the season. It isn't sort of that point that uh, the, the the British season doesn't really get go going until the Craven meeting. That there needs to be uh, more of a tie between um, Doncaster and the rest of the uh, the flat season um, in the way that it it rolls on so readily from from the Craven meeting. But I I just don't remember the last time that the spring mile didn't fill. Now, I'm sure somebody will be able to immediately point to it. But the the fact that it was so marked, I mean, you're used to seeing a mini Lincoln and quite often uh, a more... Um, diverse race in terms of younger horses get, getting into things. That just wasn't the case. It was just a uh, bog standard handicap. And that is no offence to the horses involved. I'm talking about the spectacle from the point of view of what was expected, what the Lincoln and the Constellation race, the spring mile are expected to deliver for people who are watching and paying to go racing that day.
0: And we just slid off on a, a pretty important tangent there, but just going back to to Japan and and we can rejoice in the idea that, these two terrific horses are, are likely to come to Royal Ascot in the in the summer.
2: Yeah, I I, I was really excited when when I heard that in the interview. Um, Panthalassa, who was just done on the line in the Dubai Turf by Lord North, and uh, Stay Foolish, who won uh, the Dubai Gold Cup, coming for the uh, Ascot Gold Cup in the latter sense, and the Prince of Wales estates for Panthalassa. I mean, that was brilliant. Um, I think I, I really hope that we have a, a properly uh international uh, royal ascot in the ways that we have where we've had sort of you know peak horses when 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 the australian the big australian the big guns from australia came over and we had uh, various different um countries uh, sending over horses it, it just adds to the excitement of of that meeting and you know trying to work out whether the different test of ascot is going to suit those horses compared with how they the kind of tracks that they normally race on. I, I really think that adds to the intrigue. So that really made me excited. That was a real um, positive. And a meeting like like Royal Ascot. Is managing to remain internationally relevant, and I know they've got a lot of money and all of those, those kind of things. Albeit, you know, they've also, you know, had to finance a, a lot of redevelopments as well, and you know, there's, they've, they've invested hugely um, in the sport. Uh, but nonetheless, the, 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 the imagination to to bring across. Um, Horses from around the world to um, populate this meeting as well as the creme de la creme of the of the domestic population well that's made for a hugely exciting meeting and and one that remains globally relevant
0: and if you're talking about global relevance was the most significant performance in terms of quality out of the whole of the world cup one that came in defeat from Yabir, who ran an amazing race in the Shima Classic, having had to concede so much ground and, and take such a wide trip, the Breeders' Cup turf winner, it looks as, as if he's improved again. But the sad thing is, given the concentration of quality in Charlie Appleby's yard, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, Lydia, he might actually do most of his racing in the States, uh, starting at the Man of War at, at Belmont Park in in June. We won't, we won't see him at Royal Ascot.
2: Yeah, and I think that would be a great sh- shame, because I thought Yabir... Uh, ran a huge race uh, against the, the run of things, you know, the winner and the, all the horses that finished around in much more prominent position, him coming through with a, a really strong finish. I mean, it was a, a performance of great substance and suggested that he's going to have a really strong season. And yeah, I mean, there might be, it might be that, that Yibir is particularly suited potentially to uh, racing um, abroad. Uh, his his big performances have come. At in the Shima Cast Classic and in the Breeders' Cup turf or it might just be that those those races have coincided with his greater maturity.
0: But for all the great turf performances clearly the headline as it should have been was the win of, of Country Grammar. Now this will have been received with varying degrees of enthusiasm across the world particularly in America given the recent Bob Baffert situation. The fact that Frankie Dettori rode the horse's first ride for Baffert in, in 30 years added a certain piquancy to the result and Dottori Story's enduring popularity and his never-say-die-ride earned justifiable plaudits. He did, however, Lydia, get a, a whip um, fine at $2,700, which was drop in the ocean compared to the prize money he won. Now, just compare that to Mike Smith's ban on Midnight Bizo in the Saudi Cup a couple of years ago and his own fine of $210,000. Now, I'm not saying one is right, one's wrong, but clearly there is not enough disincentive in these major races globally still to uh, deter jockeys from you know
2: understandably enough breaching the rules um i think that you can't have a situation where um a horse one horse is deemed more important than another just by dint of it mo- running in a in a group 1 as opposed to a class 6 handicap it's not helpful um for frankie de Torre to have um, broken those um rules in dubai at a time when uh, the whip is under review in Britain now, it might be that the decision-making is um, so far advanced and you'd know more about this than me because you're part of the committee overseeing this. Um, It might be that the um, decision-making is so far advanced that it has no actual impact and probably logically an individual case is not going to have any particular impact, but it does have an impact on how the decision is going to be received and uh there was an article in the in the the racing Post uh, was it chris cook who wrote it? I think it was about um individual responsibility in terms of um uh, British racing and uh the legitimacy of an aid i mean I think it's a legit, legitimate aid for the encouragement of um effort in horses I, I i'm not I'm not one of those who thinks it should only be held uh, should be used just for um safety reasons um but the problem is that that conversation is harder and harder to land when you have rules and people keep breaking them. And it's been over a very long period of time now that jockeys have held quite literally in their hand uh, the uh, message about how how we use um, this aid in horse racing and how it is used responsibly. And uh, it's become more and more critical um, as the years and the months have passed that those rules are abided by and um, for the for the whip review when it comes out when the rules are revised if um, infringements continue then we'll just be back at square one straight away and the whole the whole thing would have will have been pointless
0: yeah i think what i would say without betraying too many confidences and hopefully the recommendations of the steering group will go up before the board before before too long, and they are at a fairly advanced stage, is that I think there is widespread agreement, you know, whatever your general standpoint on use of the whip is a- across that group, that whatever is done now has to be meaningful and impactful. Otherwise, simply you'll be going around the boy again in two, three, four years' time. And that's just one example of how, in all forms of the sport, you want the playing field to be as as level as is as is possible Patrick Mullins the uh, leading amateur jumps rider has raised quite an interesting point about the supreme novice's hurdle at Cheltenham now this isn't specifically to do with parades because this wasn't a parade itself but it is to do with horses obligations to either take a right to go past the crowd first before they then canter back down to the start or go directly to post and there was a bit of a discrepancy here, Lydia. There was some favourable treatment.
2: Specifically, I think he was making the point that um, uh, three horses for the Supreme uh, turned... <laughs> it's a bit like going, on, going onto a plane. <laughs> they turned left when they came out of the paddock and others, the lessers, had to turn right. So uh, the three at the top of the market, John Bond, Dysart, Dynamo and Constitution Hill, went straight to post, whereas he was saying that uh, the other horses in the paddock uh, in the in the race had to go uh, that bit further go up in, in in front of the stands and then go back down to the start and he was saying that this is an unlevel playing field and it essentially isn't fair um, i've d- asked some questions about this it sounds as though well it, it, it's a, it's that the three jockeys of the the three horses that uh, turned left uh, made specific requests to be able to do that to the stewards beforehand and in the end after much discussion um on the basis of multiple grounds primarily safety they were allowed to do it
0: now we should stress that here, this isn't specifically a parade as in a circle parade in front of the stands as you'd expect and which is mandatory for group one flat races and every grade one jump race which isn't a grade one novice because of course this is a grade one novice but it's still part of the day and an important part of the day for a number of reasons. And it seems to be completely iniquitous that you can have some horses in a kind of championship environment doing one thing in the prelims and a load of others doing doing another. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm with Patrick here.
2: One, it is a courtesy and a basic right for the paying public to be able to see these horses. And two, it is part of the test. And of course, horsemen don't like it. Um, but it is part of the test. Is your, is your horse temperamentally able to deal with the preliminaries of a major race meeting, particularly on the flat that, has, that is, is very, very relevant in terms of the potential soundness of temperament that we wish to be perpetuating in the breed amongst the uh, best horses?
0: Well, a feature race this weekend over jumps is the Scottish National, unusually coming before the Grand National. One man who's won it three times before is trainer Nigel Twiston-Davis. He's looking for a fourth. He's got three entries, uh, bristol May, Fantastic Ass, and Check It Out. And I suggested to him that Novice Fantastic Ass might be the best of the three.
3: I think so. Um, he, he will be entered also in as a, as a, as a three-mile uh, Novice handicap chase the same day, but uh, hopefully we'll be tempted by the better prize money of the Scottish National.
0: I was sort of picking through and trying to work out whether he might stay this trip, judging on his pedigree. It was rather inconclusive, really. Do you, do you think he's a, a, what you would call a, an extreme stayer, a marathon chase stayer?
3: I think so. He he should be. Um, he's always staying on the end of his races. and uh, He won a three-mile race at uh, Lingfield in the very, very heavy ground. Um, so, you know, he's, he's looking that way.
0: What did you make of his run at Cheltenham? I thought, sort of thought he ran OK
3: yes it was just okay really um he ran all right but uh, we wanted to win and we didn't
0: i mean what i'm trying to get at is do you think he's a bit better than that
3: yeah, hopefully yes yes very much so
0: and bristol de may at the moment is heading the weights any possibility he could he could run he certainly had a lot of interest to it yeah um he just we don't
3: think there's gonna be that much rain this week so that would probably put us off running him um I'm going to talk to the owners and uh, um, today and, and make a decision later
0: on. But not impossible, but you'd need a lot of rain.
3: We would indeed, yes.
0: And check it out's the other entry. What's the plan for him?
3: You know, We're we due a, a win with him again. He's had a lot of seconds and things like that. Um, I think we may just, just hang on and see if we can find something slightly easier.
0: Right, that's some jumping news. Back toward the flat then and the Greenham Stakes... At Newbury one of the key classic trials that'll take place uh, toward the mid part of April and it has been nominated as the likely target for Richard Fahey's Royal Ascot and then subsequent group one winning two-year-old Perfect Power who could well take on the exciting Charlie Appleby trained Karibas that'll be a good race Lydia
2: yeah, that should be a really, really good race. And and let's hope that that clash comes about. Uh, Perfect Power is interesting in terms of what his um, stamina requirements are going to be, um, or race requirements are going to be this season. After he won the middle park at the back end of last season, uh, trainer Richard Farley was hinting that he might run in the Dewhurst. And that didn't actually come to pass. But it's interesting that they were thinking of a horse um, uh, with whom they hadn't ventured beyond six furlongs, that they were thinking of going seven furlongs as a two-year-old. Um, and now it, it'd be interesting to see what they have on in their sights in his three-year-old year. What do you see him as, Nick? Do you? Th- I mean, because there's plenty of, of of stamina down the dam side of the pedigree. Is he a guineas horse? Is he a coronation cup horse? What do you reckon?
0: Perfect power, I think, is a sprinter.
2: I think that too. I think I that
0: think too. Is, I think he is a sprinter. Um, and
2: you think this will be, this kind? This race will be enough to to decide that one way or another. Sometimes uh, it's quite ambiguous, can not exactly. it?
0: Exactly. You see, he could get away with it in the green, and particularly if he's a bit straighter and readier than some. Though, if Correbus runs in the green, and clearly, I'm going to be all over Correbus.
4: <laughs>
0: unfortunately, at the moment, I, I, he's a. It's a bit of a blind spot, and I suspect. I suspect it's a blind spot. We'll get cleared up quite quickly. Um, as he flatters to deceive but at the moment <laughs> Ariba's blind spot is intact but I think I think you've got, to, you've got to give it a crack haven't you with perfect power I, I mean I, I understand that the Commonwealth Cup path has been created for horses who are not going to stay the Guineas trip and it's quite right that that pattern's been created and it's quite right that there's a group one sprint at Royal Ascot for three year olds happy with all of that but um, as Charlie Hills proved with Muharra, you can start off in the Greenham not stay the trip in the guineas and then cut back and still win the uh, commonwealth cup
2: there's lots of different paths um to various destinations aren't there and uh, there's a a reason why uh, I, I think it's perfectly valid what what why not why not find out and yeah he could end up going to the guineas and having enough time to come back for the coronation cup if that's uh, not even the coronation cup the commonwealth cup the common the coronation cup would be something else entirely i still haven't got my flat brain fully plugged in uh, so if he was coming back for the commonwealth cup there'll be plenty of time between the guineas and, and royal ascot
0: of course neither of those two horses was the top rated european juvenile that honor was bestowed upon native trail and by some considerable margin according to the two-year-old handicapper as well the son of oasis dream was initially bought for sixty-seven thousand guineas as a yearling at tattersall's book one by norman williamson and he was then sold by Norman as a Breeze Up horse for 210000 at last year's Craven Breeze Up. The Craven Breeze Up's around the corner at Tattersalls and Norman has four going this year. But let's, let's really major in on this horse, Norman, because the organisation didn't need to look very far to know who was going to be their poster boy this time round. What was it you liked about him first off as a as a yearling?
4: Well, Nick, you know, you're going through book one and you've so much so much to choose from and unfortunately most you're not able to afford um you know some fantastic horses but um when i got the native trail and he came out of his stable, i i remember it like it was yesterday he i just thought you know i went, oh my god look at you know what a physical he was he was very big and powerful and not big and backward but big and powerful and had amazing action as in he, he took over the world when he walked um, some people obviously didn't like him. They probably thought he was a bit heavy, but I, you know, was lucky that I did like him and I thought he's a magnificent head. He did, he's a beautiful head on him. And if you see the shots of him now or on the front of the catalogue or whatever, he is, he is a stunning looking individual um, and and it went from there. Um, you know, I, I didn't think for one minute I'd probably be able to buy him at the level I bought him, which also for from a book one point of view, makes it interesting. Um, and and well, it tells you everyone has a chance. It,
0: and so you say that he was your type, but he might not have been everybody else's type. Is that something you've found over the years? That there's certain things that you like in horses that give you that little bit of an edge and maybe enable you to compete with a, a better pedigree or a, a better horse that you, you might not otherwise?
4: Yeah, I'm not so sure it gives you an edge because we, have, we do buy some bad ones as well. Um, gives you an edge, I suppose, you know, it gives you an edge in, as in, you might be able to afford a horse with, with little bits and pieces wrong, as in one leg might be, one foot might be turned in or turned out. So little things like that. But, um, this horse, I suppose he had very big feet. Um, and a lot of people have spoke about that and the size of them and, and one man came here to see him um, around Christmas time and he thought his pastures were too slack and that didn't bother me in the slightest his pastures especially because usually come the spring horses tend to tighten up a bit especially mm. when they get more work and you know little things like that but um, I once, you know it's hard to say it gives you the edge because we're all pretty much looking for the for the same individual but I have to say, in this instance, anyway, it certainly worked and I was I was lucky, but um, I suppose, Nick, the other side of it was he has a pedigree and a very good pedigree. Yeah, I think everyone on the page has read right, a group one winner. So if everything was perfect, everything to me was perfect, but if he wasn't as big and he was, he was a sharper looking model, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford him.
0: Okay, so when you bought him and you bought him for 67,000 guineas from book one, did you immediately think, this is one to come back to the breeze up sale with. Was that, your, was that uppermost in your mind? Yes, he was, he was
4: certainly always going to go back to a breeze up sale, all going well. Um, and that's what we buy him for. Um, I got him home and I thought, I, you know, you do, I've, I've, I'd be a doubter when I get him home. A lot of horses don't travel well and they, they always lose a bit of weight when they get back. So it's, when, it's the first day when they get back, you look and you think, oh my God, what have I done? And it, it certainly is the worst day they look after a long week at a sale or whatever. But, um, you know, when, when he got back, I thought, yes, this is big and it's probably going to be backward and it's probably going to take a lot of time. Um, but we we kicked on, we broke away and treated him the same as the rest. And um, he he took everything fantastic. But around Christmas time, I remember thinking to myself, this isn't going to walk, he's too... He, he got a bit big and a bit angler and looked more of a star. Um, And for whatever reason, you know, two weeks from that going into January, he just started to change back again and, and had this big wide back side on him and, and we went on from there, but I, it, it makes it slightly easier, Nick, when you have a good horse, because he, it's easy to look back now, but he was obviously doing everything in his comfort zone as in, when he was hacking around the gallop, you know, other horses might've been struggling with, to keep up, not, you know, when you think of what he's done. Um, so. From I have to say, from the end of January on, he took took everything really really easy, and hence I didn't have to try and push too many buttons.
0: Is it true that the best ones are the quickest learners, as a general rule, no matter what shape or size they are?
4: Uh, I wouldn't think so. No, um, this this fella, I because he was he was big, I didn't want to you know try and make him a breeze out parsing. Never, none of us, I think, and. and you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that the breeze up vendors have gone so professional. Um, none of us want to breeze up horse at the end of the day. None of us want the horse to go too far. Along. So you have to train them, you know, not to be blowing their brains and trying to get them to go fast. So if you can get one to go fast naturally, um, it's, it's a huge plus and you'll end up with a race horse at the end of the day. Um, and it's about three weeks before the Craven sale, um, I was riding him one day and I thought, listen, it's time this fella. This fellow woke up a bit and I gave him a slap on the shoulder to just go quicker. And within, within 100 yards, he was absolutely trapping. And I remember it well that I came back to my wife and I said, Jesus, did you see that? And she said, Oh my God, he can fly. And that was the first time we, you know, that I had to save one because we were getting that close to the sail. But after going a furlong and a half, I pulled up and I thought that to do, it. I don't have to do any more. I know he can, of course, he did a few more pieces of work, but I knew then that. He was covering ground. Um and he was, you know, he was going to and he was also very genuine. So he was he was going to do a good breeze no matter what, you know.
0: Can you compare the the rush that you get from feeling power and class in a horse that you've bought when you're actually riding them your first, second, third time to, to winning big races from your few your days as a jockey?
4: Yeah, it's a it's a huge um well, I suppose you're putting your own money on the line. A lot of people <laughs> <laughs> that that <laughs> certainly gives you a bit of a rush. It's, it, it's more pressure, Nick.
0: It's, yeah, definitely. It's,
4: it's, a, it's a way more pressure. Um, if you rode four horses on a day in Cheltenham, you've, you've a new one every half an hour, even though even though you, you had a fall off a favorite or something, you'd you'd another one half an hour later, which took your mind off it. But if you have your own money on the line, and, and it's, it's a day-to-day thing, you, your horse might be lame or something go wrong. But when you, when you think you have a good one, um, I don't think any of us expected this fella to be to reach the heights he did so quickly, um, because of his size and everything. But I knew I knew a forerunner, you know, up to the sale that listen, this can trap, um, not and not so much trap as in as in go fast. This, you know, he's covering ground. He's got has got a big future. He's um, and he's an interesting horse. You know, um, the, the breeze ups if you watch his breeze you know he's changing his legs he's on, not all over the shop but he keeps changing his legs and every time he's ran he's done exactly the same so you'll have people you'll have people say um you know oh he keeps changing his legs is he feeling the ground will he handle the dip this and that now i i, I do think to dip in Newmarket is it, you know is a, a slight concern for him but um I think the reason he keeps changing his legs is because he keeps trying to go faster, and so that's uh, that's something you learn from being on his back rather mm. than watching. Um, and I I find that very interesting. That when he meets the rising ground in Newmarket, especially, he did it at the breeze. He did it um, in the Dewhurst. That it's faster. He's trying to go, not changing his legs because he wants to go one direction or the other. And when you're riding him, you feel this magnificent power underneath you. Um, and also just to. If you worked him at home and we usually only work, or work quick once a week with him and it's the following day after that you give him a canter that you you find this magnificent stride because he's almost stretched himself out the day before um you know so, so little things like that make like, her interesting that you you get from being able to ride him and i suppose you know you know before anybody else um you know if if you've been you know, riding horses, as long as I have, you, you you get to find out what you like and what you don't like pretty quick. And there's, there's a lot of them we don't like. But this fella, this fella was a bit different, yeah.
0: Now, have you got some that you like for, for this year? Because you know, you know as well as anybody, you're only as good as your, your last sale and last year was spectacular. But all that is erased from the memory fairly quickly this time around. Yeah, absolutely. Gone. Um,
4: have I got a few? I have. Um, with, four, with four coats. Um, and we think we think we have a nice bunch. We think we have a nice bunch overall this year. But we have four nice coats going to going to the Craven sale. Um, I can't pick one out, Nick. I can't. Of course, I can pick one out if you give me enough money now. Um, but I can't because and this is an interesting thing from from a, a breeze up perspective. If I pick one out now and he breezes bad, everybody's going to say you either don't know what you're doing or you picked the wrong one. Well. That's what it's down to. It is down to the day, um, but I, I think I've four nice horses, um, and at the moment, Touchwood they're going fantastic. Um, we've a, we've a cold. Sh- well, we've a cold by Star Spangled Banner seems sharp, and we've gone back to the well again. And we've another nice Oasis Dream out of a half sister to Mecca's Angels. so should plenty of speed on the page. And we have a Camelot. Um, Beautiful, sharp-looking Camelot. Now he's loads of size and scope, but he doesn't look a backward horse. And we have a, a Warfront who is a who is a big colt. He's 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 big for a Warfront. Um, so at the moment, we like all four, and, and they're going fantastic. So i will have to let the breeze to the breeze up readers.
0: And that twenty-five thousand pound bonus that you got as your share of the quarter of a million Craven Royal Ascot Group One bonus last year, uh, I guess anything like that is is a big incentive for you guys.
4: It's it's big for us, but it's also big for the owners with what they get. But it is big for us and you never think it's gonna be you and you never think it's gonna happen. But I must say last year when he when he made a trail became good, we're thinking, um, you know, was he sold a bit cheap and did we get enough for him and I must say twenty five thousand is a big help.
0: Some really interesting insight there from Norman Williamson who's heading off to the Tattersalls Craven Breeze up sales having Uh, sold native trail the champion two-year-old of europe there last year lydia is back with me um that should have i think i think that's going to have your flat brain working now i think that little (laughs) that little blast of norman and native trail that will have will have got you going but of course all you're thinking is alderbrook master oats
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's the time of year where i'm torn between the two um and uh, yeah I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky time of year this one um, as you're trying to recall who on earth won the derby last year um, I, I am joking but you get my, my drift um, and at the same time looking towards the, towards the Grand National so yeah I'm, and also adjusting your eye to horses in the paddock you know go, going to a flat meeting and going oh that's small <laughs> and then, then realising actually no uh,
0: yeah I, I, it took the, your, the, your entire answer for me to come up with that AR <laughs>
2: We spoke about him earlier in the in the
0: pod. I know it's ridiculous, absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. But you're spot on. But I just think it's the it's, it's just a, it's, it's just a quick years.
2: recall thing, isn't
0: it? Yeah, it's just the advancing years. But never mind. On we go, on we on we plough. You'll you'll know what's running this afternoon.
2: Uh, yes, we'll be several hours older by the time the seven o'clock at Newcastle is run. Um, and I'm going for All Bridge, who um, managed to win last time out and uh, has now got William Pyle taking £7 off I still think that that makes him very competitive um, for the all-weather championships mile handicap and that's 7 o'clock at Newcastle today
0: Excellent 7 o'clock Newcastle Ulshaw Bridge Leah thank you very much thank you very much for watching uh, after what has been a a very interesting weekend of international sport that was Monday the 28th of March we'll see you again tomorrow bye bye